So we're into the, the third sermon in our Tough Questions series. These are questions or objections that people have with the Christian faith. And the one that we're going to be having a look at today is how can a good God allow so much suffering and evil? And I think we're going to have to put on our seatbelts for this because this is, this is quite a weighty subject, uh, as you'll see even from, from my introduction. A Christian philosopher called Peter Invergen tells the true story of a woman who was assaulted by a man. He raped her and then cut off both her arms below the elbows, leaving her to die. And somehow she managed to crawl to a road, I think this just beggars the imagination, where she was picked up, taken to hospital, and her life was saved. But she now has to live without the use of her arms and with the memories of that terrible night. And stories like this present a, a real problem for us as Christians, because the Bible teaches that God is both all-powerful and all-good. And this means that we would expect him to stop horrendous evil and suffering like that, since he would not only want to prevent it because he's a good God, he would also have the perfect ability to do so because he's an omnipotent God, he's all-powerful. So the question that weighs very heavily on our shoulders, especially when we think of specific cases like that, is why didn't he stop it? Why didn't he stop those horrible events from taking place? And so let's consider two possibilities, first of all. Either he wanted to stop the evil, but he couldn't, in which case he wouldn't be all-powerful. Or he could have stopped the evil, but he didn't want to, in which case he wouldn't be good. And so let's put this together into a statement of the argument that we're having a look at today. It goes like this. A truly good God would not want evil to exist. And an all-powerful God would not allow evil to exist. Evil exists. Therefore, a God who is both good and powerful cannot exist. So this is where we're gonna be going today. We've just had the statement of the argument. You are right here between statement of the argument and the history of the argument. I'm gonna go into a very brief history of the argument just so that you don't feel intimidated by it. This argument has been around, um, as far as we can tell, over 2,000 years, probably longer than that. Um, then there are ways to counter the argument. We'll have a look at two different ways of doing that. And then we'll have a look at some helpful perspectives. So first of all, the history of the argument. It's been around for a long time, as I said. In fact, the earliest record of it comes from the writings of a Greek philosopher called Epicurus, who lived about 300 years before the birth of Christ. So that's roughly 2,300 years ago. Um, about 300 years ago, at the time of the philosophical enlightenment, um, the argument began to influence large numbers of people. Before that, it didn't really influence a lot of people. There were just a few philosophers um, who had time to think about these things. Everyone else was trying to cope <laughs> with, the, with the evil and suffering in the world, so they just didn't really have time to think about philosophical questions like that. But by the 1970s, the argument from evil was widely believed to provide logical proof that God did not exist, as we describe him as being all-powerful and all, God, uh, all good. Um, but that began to change, fortunately, in the 1970s and the, around about the middle of the 1970s with the publication of the work of a prominent analytical philosopher whose name was Alvin Plattinger. 
Plattinger argued, um, I'm just quoting here, the existence of evil is not logically incompatible with the existence of an all-powerful, all-knowing, and perfectly good God. Whilst Gail was going through her chemotherapy, we were reading a book that's been written by Tim Keller called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And this is what he reports in one of the chapters in that book. He says, Plattinger and other philosophers who followed in his wake were so effective in their arguments that 25 years later, namely at the changeover of the millennium, 2000, it was widely conceded that the logical argument against God did not work. And since then, skeptical thinkers have formulated a new and weaker version called the evidential argument against God. And so we're gonna be having a look at the way we can counter those arguments. Um, I'm gonna just be considering the logical argument of evil against God, uh, because if we can bring that down, then we can bring down the weaker argument as well, the evidential argument. So let's dive on into um, how do we counter the argument. Before the 1970s, Christian philosophers and theologians came up with different ways to explain why God allows evil. And those explanations came to be known as theodicies. And so the word theodicy was coined by Gottfried Leibniz, and it means literally a justification of God's ways to human beings. So when a skeptic came to you and said, told you about the case of the woman who was raped and her arms got cut off, you would then be looking for ways to try and show them why God would have done that. And so when you try to explain why God would allow evil, you're using a theodicy. Um, and it's coming up with a, a convincing theodicy is actually very difficult. And the reason for that is that we are just finite human beings. We're trying to explain the workings of an infinite God. And surely his reasons and purposes are beyond our finite minds. So attempting to satisfy the skeptic in that way is actually very difficult because you'll keep coming up with things and you'll say, well, how do you explain this? What was God's reason for this? What was God's purpose in that? And it's very difficult to do that. So I'm just gonna show you how difficult it is by coming up with, uh, well, presenting to you two common theodicies. And you'll begin to realize that you've come across these things if you haven't heard them called in the, uh, under this title. So first of all, the soul-making theodicy. The soul-making theodicy argues that hardship and suffering are essential to develop a person's soul. In other words, no pain, no gain. Isn't that right? This idea that if it doesn't kill me, then um, I'm gonna grow as a result of it. And I think that's actually a quote from a philosopher called Nietzsche. On uh, Tuesday, well, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings, uh, Barry Thomas and I go exercising. And uh, whenever we're in the middle of planking or doing press-ups, the groundsmen at Gateway Junior come walking past. And there's one particular guy who always calls out, health and fitness. <laughs> and Barry always says, no, it's a pain and suffering. <laughs> but it's true. You know, I wouldn't be this fine physical specimen this morning <laughs> if I hadn't gone through some pain and suffering. And of course, there's evidence in the Bible uh, that pain and suffering have an, a positive effect on your soul. 
So James writes, for example, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So the implication here is that if we haven't gone through some pain and suffering, we lack things. We're lacking in maturity. This is what Paul writes. He says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. So interesting, isn't it? Why? Because we know what suffering produces. It produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character. Okay, so there's this idea that pain and suffering do help you to grow. But the soul-making theodicy goes even further because it says, not only does it say that, but it also says that, in fact, they are essential for your soul to grow, that God couldn't have created some other way for your soul to grow. And I suppose we can sort of come to grips with that because we do need, um, if we're gonna develop virtues like courage and humility and self-control and faithfulness, um, we do need some trials to engage in. And where would those trials come from if they didn't come or emanate from evil choices and evil in the world? But there are a few problems, and I think maybe you, you might even be starting to see them, some problems with the, the soul-making theodicy. The first one is that um, the pain and suffering don't seem to be distributed according to the need. And so, for example, um, you might look at certain individuals in our country and say, those men need a lot more pain and suffering in their life because they are bad men and they need to change. And then you might look at um, innocent people in the high density suburbs and think, good heavens, they have pain and suffering overflowing, it's, it's overwhelming. So it doesn't really account for the intensity of pain and suffering in the way that it's distributed. It doesn't account for, maybe the skeptic will say to you, well, what about children that die in pain? I mean, this child dies, it's been eaten, out, eaten from the inside with cancer, and it dies even before it has a chance for its, its soul to develop. Why would God do that? And then, of course, animals as well. It's terrible when we see animals suffering. Uh, they don't really have the same soul that we do. Why would they need to go through that? So there are some objections to the soul-making theodicy. Let's move on to another one that I think you probably will have heard about. It's called the free will theodicy. Um, uh, Let me state it like this. God created us not to be robots and animals of instinct, but to be free, rational agents. In other words, we have the ability to choose. And because we have the ability to make real choices, we're also capable of real love. So Gail knows that I really love her because I chose her over other people. I wasn't compelled or forced to love Gail. And so um, that ability to choose gives us um, the capability to love genuinely. But if God was um, was to make us able to choose um, good things, then he had to make us capable also of choosing evil things. So our free will can be abused, and that is the reason why there is evil in the world. But this greater good for us of having a rational soul and for God of having real sons and daughters that love him rather than robots or pets 
is worth the evil that almost inevitably comes. And I think many of you will have heard that argument. Notice that when we're justifying ourselves using this theodicy to a skeptic, we would be saying things like, God didn't create evil. It doesn't come from him. Okay, we're trying to justify how a good God would allow certain things to happen. We say, no, the evil doesn't come from him. It comes when man exercises his choices to ignore God. And in the process, good things that, that God made get twisted and they get corrupted from their original design. And yet God allowed that so as to achieve the greater good of human freedom and love. So what are the problems with this theodicy? Let's have a look at the first one. The skeptic might say, okay, Ian, I can understand why there needs to be um, evil in the world so that human beings can exercise their free will and, and, and their choices. But how does that account for the evil that comes from natural disasters? And that's a very valid objection, isn't it? Um, there's a difference between personal um, problems and, and then um, natural ones that emanate from natural disasters. And the way we would counter that is by saying, well, when God created the universe, he created it in such a way that humans would live in relationship and in obedience to him. As soon as we disobeyed him, pain and suffering and death came into the world. But not only are human beings subject to that death, but also the very fabric of the universe is subject to it. So um, we see in Romans 8, for example, it says that the creation has been subjected to decay as a result of what we did. And so when we see tsunamis and earthquakes and things like that's happening, it's because the world is generally dying. It's, not, it's got this trend of death, it's dying, it's, it's moving towards an end, it's not gonna last forever. So we can sort of um, counter that one and show that even natural disasters come from a human's uh, choice of evil. This next one is, is quite critical. Is it true that God had to create us with the capability of evil in order for us to be free agents and therefore capable of love? And maybe what the skeptic would say to you, well, God has free will, but he isn't capable of evil. So why didn't he create you in the same way? Okay, create you as having free will, but being incapable of evil. And he might say to you, tell me a little bit about heaven. Isn't it true that in heaven you're still going to have free will, but there will be no evil and suffering? So if it's possible in heaven, why couldn't God have made it possible here on earth? And I think that's a very valid question. One of the problems with this free will theodicy. The third problem um, of this theodicy is that it assumes that God is not able to control the outcome of our choices. And yet the Bible teaches over and over again that God directs history according to his will and he doesn't violate the freedom and the responsibility of our actions. So if you think of it, for example, with this story from the Bible, um, Moses is speaking to God and, and God says to Moses, I want you to take my people out of Egypt, but I am gonna harden Pharaoh's heart, all right? I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. And then later on, as you read the account of that, as the plagues start to come, on four occasions the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and on another four occasions it says that 
Pharaoh hardened his heart. So which is true? They're actually both true. God was sovereign over the choices of Pharaoh. He had ordained it that Pharaoh would harden his heart, and yet Pharaoh freely choose, chose to harden his heart, and he was held responsible for it by God. And so if God is able to do that, if he is able to render it certain that we will freely choose certain things, why couldn't he do that with, with evil human beings? Why couldn't he have in some way stopped that man from abducting that woman and raping her and cutting her arms off? Once again, it's a valid <clears throat> objection. So what you might be asking now is, well, why are you presenting these theodicies to me if they don't actually work if they can't fully justify God's reasons and purposes for allowing evil. Well, we do it for two reasons. First of all, it'll help you to recognize a theodicy so that when you're starting to use one, you will realize, hmm, I'm about to do a really hard thing because the burden is on me to prove that God is good in spite of whatever has happened. And the other one is that it gives you very useful perspectives and a, and a partial understanding of um, the problem of evil. For example, the soul-making theodicy makes the useful point that evil and the suffering it brings often make us better people. And that is true. Even um, secular philosophers would recognize that. Um, and then when we look at the free will theodicy, it reminds us that often we are responsible for our own sufferings, which come as a result of the consequences of our sinful decisions. So we've had a look at these two popular theodicies, and we've seen that they don't fully explain God's reasons and purposes for allowing evil. And there are many other theodicies out there as well, just people grappling with how to get their head around this. And they're helpful because they do give us a partial understanding um, and they help us to, to get to grips with this whole problem of evil. But what I'd like to do now is to show you that there's another way of countering the argument from evil and it's called a defense. How does a defense differ from a theodicy? Well, with a theodicy, I'm trying to give you a full justification for the reasons, God's reasons and purposes in allowing evil. But a defense simply seeks to prove that the argument against God from evil fails, that the skeptics have failed to make their case. A defense shows that the evidence of evil does not mean God can't or is unlikely to exist. And the advantage of this, folks, is that the burden of the proof is now on the skeptic. Instead of the believer having to answer the why question sufficiently for the skeptic to say, okay, well now I understand why God had reasons for that woman to suffer in that way. Instead of that, um, we're asking him to, prove, to provide enough convincing arguments um, for us to be able to say, now I see why, if evil exists, God cannot or at least is not likely to exist. So let's have a look at two defenses. First of all, this defense against the logical argument. Let me just give you the argument there again. A truly God would not want evil to exist. An all-powerful God would not allow evil to exist. Evil exists. Therefore, a God who is both good and powerful cannot exist. This argument here has a hidden premise or an assumption. Namely, 
that God does not have any good reasons for allowing evil to exist. So you might point this out to the skeptic. Could it be, Mr. Skeptic, that God might have reasons for allowing evil to exist? Reasons that in his mind outweigh the advantages of a world without evil. If that, if that were the case, then there would be no contradiction between his existence and that of evil. So, can you prove to me that God has no reasons? After all, and it would be hard for him to do that, because humans often allow suffering in someone's life in order to usher in a greater good. We've already talked about that. Take doctors, for example. A doctor will often initiate a very painful procedure in order to bring long-term healing. A parent will punish a child, isn't that right? Um, by withdrawing toys or privileges so that they don't end up being an irresponsible adult who brings even more pain on themselves. So once you pointed out the possibility that God could have good reasons for allowing evil to exist, evil is no longer incompatible with an omnipotent and truly good God. Now, suppose that the skeptic accepts that in certain cases there is consistency between God and suffering, but he can't accept that it's true in cases where the kind and the magnitude of evil and suffering seem overwhelming. You know, maybe he's saying to you, Ian, I've just told you about that woman, I've just told you about what happened to her. How can that sort of suffering be justified for the sake of instruction and character growth. And the temptation there would be for you to slip into the mode of trying to justify God again, to use a defense and not a theodicy, uh, to use a theodicy and not a defense. But what you would do is you would say, hang on, um, I think you're making another assumption. He's assuming that since he cannot see a good reason, God can't. But remember that he's trying to prove that since there is evil in the world, an omnipotent God cannot exist. And yet if God is omnipotent, isn't it possible that he could have reasons that the skeptic was unable to grasp? So basically you're saying to him, your assumption is that God couldn't have good reasons for this because you can't see them. And that's so common in our culture because we, we live in a culture where we think that we can figure everything out rationally. But we can't. And remember, he's trying to prove an omnipotent God is not consistent. An omnipotent God knows everything. So he could have reasons that you don't see. And that's the point that we're trying to get across. So the logical argument of evil against God fails. But here's the thing, guys. Um, most people are not philosophers. And the way that they argue with you is not gonna be in that manner. They're gonna be arguing from a gut feeling. So let's just have a look briefly at that. Um, a defense against the visceral, which means um, stomach, gut feeling against the argument. So probably what would happen here is that in the case of, of the woman that we talked about earlier, um, the, the skeptic would say to you, look, I don't wanna go into all sorts of philosophical arguments. I don't wanna try and follow your logic. All I'm saying to you is that it just cannot be right that God would have allowed that to happen. It's just wrong, wrong, wrong. I, 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 and there's nothing more I can say. I just feel that it's wrong. And what you would have to point out 
um, is that once again, well, try and get the, the, the skeptic to realize that he probably doesn't have a basis for deciding on what is right and what is wrong. Because that feeling that he's got, that feeling is coming from a, a value judgment. It's coming from a sense of justice. And what, he, what he's saying is that I'm feeling that this is wrong because deep down I believe that God would be wrong to do that. But, but how can, on what basis can he judge God as being wrong? Let me tell you how this works out. So um, I've, I've got a friend who believes that there is no God and that he can account for everything using the secular um, worldview, which includes evolution. But the funny thing is that he's got such a strong sense of injustice. Um, and he's a great historian, so we'll often go and ch chat about history. And he'll say to me, Ian, how is it that someone like Hitler could get away with what he gets, gets away with? And, I, and then I'll say to him, just to be the devil's ad advocate, I'll say, well, how can you say that what Hitler did is wrong? And he says, of course it's wrong. And I'll say, no, genuinely, because your worldview is that it's survival of the fittest. So Hitler was the fittest, and he was the one who survived, well, was hoping to survive, and so he was perfectly justifying his actions because he was getting to pass on his genes to the next generation. And so unless we have um, a Christian worldview, we actually don't have a basis on which to judge right and wrong. So that feeling, you would then turn back to the person and say, where does that feeling come from if you don't have a basis of right and wrong? And it would probably lead them to the thought that, well, maybe, maybe I was created. Maybe I was created in the image of God. Maybe I carry that sense of justice that God has. Maybe I carry an aspect of his ability to discern between right and wrong. That's the argument against the, the visceral argument. So folks, let's move on now to um, some helpful perspectives. I'm just gonna close off with these. The first perspective comes from the doctrines of heaven and the final judgment, and we've already been through those in the first sermon in the series, so I can refer you to the podcast if you'd like to have a look at that. But sometimes it's very important to evaluate, or well not sometimes, it's always important to evaluate our earthly sufferings against the reality of a suffering-free and evil-free eternity. And that perspective helps us. For example, if you're sitting in a petrol queue, it may seem like that thing is never gonna end. Right in the middle of sitting in that queue, it's just like, I don't know if I can bear this. It's just such a pain. But five minutes after you've had your tank full of petrol, it becomes a distant memory. And how much more so when, when we look back on suffering from the perspective of two weeks, of a month, of six months, of a year, of eternity. And that's why I think that Paul can write, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So that's the first perspective that help us, helps us as, as Christians. The second one is that God actually became a victim of evil. And this I found so helpful. It's just incredible to think, how could God be bad if, if he sent his son, if he bound himself to humanity in such a way that he became a man, his son came down onto the earth, 
took the punishment for our sins. Not only did he go through unspeakable tortures, physical tortures, but think of the spiritual torture that he went through. He was separated from, him, from his father. In a sense, that punishment was like an eternal separation from God. Can you imagine? He did that because he wanted to sort out this problem of pain and suffering and bring us to a point where eventually we could enjoy an eternity with him. A very useful perspective for us to have. So I'd just like to close my conclusion with just two dangers, I think, for Christians. The first one is that um, if we have the ability to argue, and some people have much better ability to argue than others, there's certain people I won't pick an argument with because I just know I'm just going to lose it. So some of us are good at arguing, and we might rely a little bit too heavily on our ability to argue. And the temptation, if you're like that, is that when someone comes to you um, with their problem with pain and suffering, is you might not differentiate between the kind of problem they're having. You see, that woman who, who, who had just been raped and had her arms cut off, she's not grappling with a theological problem at that point. What she's grappling with is how on earth do I get through this? How on earth do, does my husband get through this? How do my wife and children, I mean my, my children, get through this? And so if you're a very intellectual person um, and someone's sitting there and just saying, why on earth did God do this? And you start launching into all of these arguments. It's just the most unloving, uncaring thing that you can do. Um, and here's the thing, that our Christian worldview, which is, happens to be the true one, does equip us to deal with pain and suffering in life. But those people, skeptics, who have proved to themselves that God doesn't exist, they actually don't have any means or resources to go through pain and suffering. And so we come, we approach them with the sense of great compassion and love as they go through whatever pain and suffering they might be experiencing. The other thing that might happen, the first thing we talked about is that you might rely too much on your ability to argue. Um, you know, God, God is there to help us. Um, the second thing, um, you might become intimidated. And I think many of us are in that place. We just think, oh my word, you know, this is such a weighty thing. I don't, I don't quite know how to articulate this. Let me just say that we, we, we need to rest on God and the power of the Holy Spirit working with us. Um, I, I, it, it's important for us to be able to give um, a rational explanation, but you know, often God will just cut through that with something that he, that he tells us in the moment. And what I find significant is that that argument um, which I talked about earlier, the, the argument against, against the visceral argument, um, I, I realized that I'd been using that. The Holy Spirit had led me to use that with my friend without even knowing um, that, that, that there was a, a particular label for it. And that was just because the Holy Spirit had helped me to see that in the, in the occasion when I was discussing with my friend. Last thing I'd just like to say is just if you are a skeptic today, um, once you have disproved God, how are you gonna cope with the pain and suffering in this world? Is your worldview sufficient to, to deal um, with the pain and suffering that we find? And I think it's an important question to ask ourselves. Shall we pray? Father God, thank you so much that you meet us at our point of need. Sometimes we need 
a rational argument. Sometimes we just need a touch of the Holy Spirit. And for you to cut through right to the heart of the matter. And we know that you can do that through a rational argument. You can do that through some other way. But we just pray that you would touch every person here. Um, Whatever it is that they um, think of when they bring up this, this question of why. Father, I pray that you would touch them. I pray that something, what's been said today, might bring a new perspective, might encourage them. I pray that you would touch them in the week ahead to, to bring them to a point of, of healing and also to bring us all to a point of absolute faith that you are an all-powerful God who is good and who loves us and so that we would be able to step out in the confidence of that knowledge and live lives that please you and exalt you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.